This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Our part of the country is in considerable fermentation on what they suspect to be a recent roguery. There is much dissatisfaction with Mr. J and his treaty. From north to south, this monument of folly or venality is universally execrated. The Chamber of Commerce of New York, made up of English merchants, is the only body which has yet expressed a sentiment approving it. For my part, I consider myself now but as a passenger, leaving the world and its government to those who are likely to live longer in it. It had been nearly a year and a half since Thomas Jefferson had returned to his home in Monticello when he wrote these words in letters to Thomas Mann Randolph and Mann Page in August 1795. As noted by Jefferson historian Dumas Malone, by the time of his retirement, quote, his family, his farms, and his books called him irresistibly, he had said, and he was impatient to rebuild his house. This did not mean, however, that he had completely divorced himself from public affairs but his distance from the nation's capital impeded his ability to get up-to-the-minute details. Quote, The master of Monticello, upon his return to his estate in 1794, did not learn for weeks what happened to the unfinished public business he had left behind him in Philadelphia. For three months, Jefferson had no choice but to let his political mind lie fallow. By April, however, the jam was broken, as though by the thaw of spring. He would regularly receive reports from Senator James Monroe and Representative James Madison, and he was not afraid to continue to speak his mind to his former boss. In May 1794, Jefferson would end a letter to President Washington that was mostly about agricultural affairs with an abrupt detour into foreign affairs, asserting that, quote, My opinion of the British government is that nothing will force them to do justice but the loud voice of their people and that this can never be excited but by distressing their commerce. He was quick to note in the next sentence that, quote, I cherish tranquility too much to suffer political things to enter my mind at all. But Washington likely called bull on that, just as you are, dear listener. No, despite his protestations, Mr. Jefferson was not done with politics just yet, and the debate over the Jay Treaty would prove that the politicos in Philadelphia were not quite done with him either. Welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As John Jay from Experience knew that crossing the Atlantic in the winter could be a treacherous prospect, he decided upon the completion of the treaty with Great Britain in November 1794 that he would remain in Britain, quote, chill spring. Indeed, I shall want repairs before I'm quite fit for any voyage. Just in case anything went wrong with the crossing, as sometimes ships did sink or documents got lost or damaged in transit, Jay sent three separate copies of the treaty back to the government in Philadelphia. Three turned out to be the magic number, as only one of the copies actually arrived on March 7, 1795, nearly four months after it had been signed. As things turned out, Washington may very well have wished that that copy as well had ended up in Davy Jones's locker. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 
Before we delve into what happened with the treaty, I'd like to thank Sean Munger for reading our introductory quotes today. Sean is the host of the Second Decade podcast, which covers events two decades past where we're at in our narrative. His tales from the 18-teens are filled with familiar figures such as Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe, as well as everyday folks far from the halls of power. He doesn't restrict himself to the United States either. Thus, you can learn about the Hawaiian Islands from that time period, as well as the last Great Frost Fair of London. I just got done listening to an episode about the experiences of two students at Harvard College, and Sean's commentary on a back and forth between the teenage boy and his mother over what all mothers and teenage boys fight about, namely, money and laundry, had me laughing out loud as I was walking to work. It is quite entertaining and informative, and I highly recommend that you go and check out the Second Decade podcast. Well, after you're finished with this episode, that is. With that said, let's get to it. The beginning of 1795 would mark not only Washington's sixth year in office as president, but would bring about the end of the final term of the third U.S. Congress. Washington and the administration figuratively watched the horizon for a copy of the treaty after hearing reports from Europe in late January and February that Jay's negotiations had been successful, and they hoped that it would come in time for the third Congress to take it up. The elections for the next Congress had already taken place, at the time, with political parties still being quite ill-defined, they could not be sure of how the newcomers would vote. However, March 3rd came and went with no treaty, and the third Congress was gaveled out of session. The president sent word before Congress scattered to the winds that he was calling for a special session of Congress to convene on June 8th to consider the treaty, which he felt had to arrive by that point, an unknown treaty to be considered by an unknown Congress. At least one of the mysteries would be resolved in quick order when on March 7th, a ship came into Philadelphia Harbor and the copy of Jay's treaty was brought to the president's house on Market Street. So what did Washington think of the treaty? Well, on March 8th, he wrote to his estate manager, William Pierce, about affairs at Mount Vernon. On March 10th, he wrote to Charles Carter of Ludlow, refusing to send Carter's son money as he had requested and tersely asserting that, quote, my friends entertain a very erroneous idea of my pecuniary resources when they set me down for a money lender. On March 14th, he wrote to James Ross about land that he was looking to sell in western Pennsylvania now that all that Whiskey Rebellion mess was settled. On March 15th, he wrote to his former Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson. Surely he was asking for his thoughts on the treaty, right? No. He wrote to Jefferson about the construction of the federal capital along the Potomac and his desire to support, quote, the endowment of a university in the United States. Well, that's all well and good, but what about the treaty? What did he think about the treaty? Well, we don't know, but a biographer of Washington's has a guess. Ron Chernow, in his Washington biography, wrote, quote, Washington must have quietly gagged as he poured over its the treaties, provisions, which seemed heavily slanted toward Great Britain. The treaty failed to stem the odious British practice of seizing American sailors on the high seas. Shockingly, it granted British imports most favored nation status, even though England did not reciprocate for American imports. Once the treaty was revealed, it would seem to many as if Jay had groveled before his British counterparts in a demeaning throwback to colonial times. The treaty would strike Southerners as further damning proof that Washington was a traitor to his heritage, for Jay had failed to win compensation for American slaves carted off at the end of the Revolutionary War. 
This is all speculation, of course, about Washington's reaction, as we have no direct account, at least from what I can find, of the president's actual thoughts. Secretary of State Randolph, however, would provide secondhand insight into Washington's reactions to the treaty when he wrote to Jay the day after the treaty's arrival and informed Jay that, quote, The last evening and this morning, the president has been employed in perusing your dispatches, and they will occupy his attention until he shall have come to some definitive judgment on the treaty. Washington and Randolph were searching for something, anything, that would justify what would likely be perceived as large concessions made by Jay in the treaty. Randolph asserted, quote, that the particulars of your oral negotiations would be of infinite value in showing what was unattainable. The distance and communication lag was a hindrance to the administration's ability to gather information in order to prepare a response to what it knew would be a debate. Looking at the situation, any treaty with Great Britain would have been the subject of vehement debate, considering the fact that memories of the war fought just over a decade prior were still fresh in most minds. But this treaty in particular would be a hard sell. Even before the treaty arrived, Representative Fisher Ames wrote to Thomas Dwight in February 1795 that, quote, the success of Mr. Jay will secure peace abroad and kindle war at home. Faction will sound the Toscan against the treaty. I see a little cloud, as big as a man's hand, in Bosch's paper, that indicates a storm. Two things will be attempted. First, before the event is known, to raise the expectation of the public that we have everything granted and nothing given in return. And secondly, that the treaty, when published, has surrendered everything. I think it probable that they will succeed in stirring up the fires of the South, for when have they shown a want of philosophy or folly in kindling a fire? We must wait for time, sometimes our friend, sometimes our foe, to help us out of our uncertainties and embarrassments. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The administration's first response was, in fact, clam up and wait for time. As Randolph informed Jay, quote, the treaty will remain unknown through the president or myself to any person upon earth until the special congressional session began on June 8th. By June, hopefully they could get some information back from Jay and start to construct a valid argument. Meanwhile, the opposition was, in fact, assuming the worst. As Madison wrote to Jefferson in mid-February 1795, shortly after Ames was writing to Dwight, he informed his friend that, quote, although nearly three months have passed since the signing of the treaty by Jay, the official account of it has not been received, and the public have no other knowledge of its articles than are to be gleaned from the imperfect scraps of private letters. From these, it is inferred that the bargain is much less in our favor than might be expected, from the circumstances which cooperate it with the justice of our demands. It is even conjectured that on some points, particularly the Western Post, the arrangements will be inadmissible. It is wrong to prejudge, but I suspect that Jay has been betrayed by his anxiety to couple us with England and to avoid returning with his finger in his mouth. 
It is apparent that those most likely to be in the secret of the affair do not assume an air of triumph. Upon its arrival in Philadelphia in March, Madison would write that, quote, what its contents are, the executive alone as yet know, the most impenetrable secrecy being observed. You will easily guess the curiosity and disappointment of the public. Complaints, however, are repressed by the confidence that some adequate reasons exist for the precaution. James Monroe, being on hand in Paris, and of whom we'll be talking more about in a moment, would learn of the treaty's conclusion sooner than his fellow Americans on the other side of the ocean, and would write to Jay in January 1795, asserting that what news they had of the treaty had, quote, excited much uneasiness in the councils of this, i.e. the French government, and asking him to provide a copy of the treaty, even dispatching an associate to obtain the copy of the treaty and bring it back. Jay would not go for that, however. In his reply on February 5th, though he would provide him a small extract from the treaty that, quote, nothing in this treaty contained shall, however, be construed or operate contrary to former and existing public treaties from other sovereigns or states. The only part that Jay felt applicable to France, he would not send a full treaty without instructions from the State Department. He told Monroe, quote, you must be sensible that the United States, as a free and independent nation, have an unquestionable right to make any pacific arrangements with other powers which mutual convenience may dictate, provided those engagements do not contradict or impugn their prior engagements from other states. It does not belong to ministers who negotiate treaties to publish them even when perfected, much less treaties not yet completed and remaining open to alteration or rejection. Such acts belong exclusively to the governments who form them. Both administration and opposition, however, would need more information before they could move forward. And for the moment, the old holding pattern was back in place. Certain news from Europe, however, was still finding its way across the Atlantic, including word of the new U.S. Minister to France Monroe's, quote, fraternal embrace of August 14th, as noted in episode 1.23. John Jay wrote a private letter to Secretary of State Randolph about the matter on September 13th, asserting that, quote, his, Monroe's, speech to the French National Convention is regarded here in London as not being consistent with the neutral situation of the U.S. An uneasy sensation has thereby been made here in the public mind, and probably in that of the cabinet. Randolph would respond to Jay on November 12th of his, quote, unquote, regret for, quote, any uneasy emotions in the breast of the British ministry. Then on December 18th, Washington sent his own thoughts to Jay on the matter, asserting that Monroe's actions and words were, quote, a measure that does not appear to have been well devised, and that, quote, he has stepped beyond the true line. Representative James Madison would write to Monroe on December 4th that, quote, the language of your address to the convention was certainly very grating to the ears of many here in Philadelphia but shares with him that he was not, as of yet, being openly attacked, as he was seen as being a representative of the Washington administration. Monroe was not surprised by the reaction, having written to Madison in September that, quote, I doubt not this measure will be scanned with unfriendly eyes by many in America. They will say it was intended that those things should have been smuggled in secretly and as secretly deposited afterwards but they are deceived if they suppose me capable of being the instrument of such purposes. On the contrary, I've endeavored to take the opposite ground, with a view of producing the best effect here 
as well as there, and I am well satisfied that it has produced here a good effect. However, the distance across the Atlantic made it difficult for Monroe to defend himself to the administration. As often happened, some of his dispatches, including the one back to the State Department reporting on his reception by the French National Convention, were delayed. While letters and dispatches written later arrived back in the U.S. sooner, quote, in which he, Monroe, alluded to his reception without explaining his motives. Assuming that Monroe was avoiding an explanation, Washington instructed Randolph to express his disapproval. Thus, on December 2nd, Randolph wrote to Monroe chiding him, quote, for not insisting on a private reception which would have spared the nation the embarrassment of seeing Monroe's address assailed in the press of the Allied powers, and asserting that while Monroe had been tasked, quote, to cultivate the French Republic with zeal, he should avoid any unnecessary éclat. In other words, don't hurt yourself, and by extension the nation, by being too nice to the French. Soon after Randolph sent this letter off, Monroe's original report of his reception arrived in Philadelphia, and Randolph would write another letter to Monroe, walking back some of the critique of his performance. Monroe, meanwhile, when he received Randolph's letter in February, would turn around and send back on February 12, 1795, a lengthy defense of his actions and words at his reception. Needless to say, even with Monroe's explanation, it was a safe bet that he wasn't going to win favorite diplomatic minister of the year in the Washington administration anytime soon. Unaware at the time of the difficulties being posed in Europe by Jefferson's protege Monroe, Washington and Randolph considered sending the champion of Democratic Republicans, Thomas Jefferson himself, back to Europe to represent the administration. As we've discussed in the past, Spain's control of the Mississippi River and decision to block American commerce from using the river to transport its goods was the cause of much frustration in what was then the American West. And the summer of 1794, that same summer when the Whiskey Rebellion was going on in western Pennsylvania and the Trans-Oconee Republic was being established down in Georgia, the Democratic Society of Lexington, Kentucky was agitating for the federal government to do something either diplomatically or militarily, to resolve the situation with a strong or else hanging in their words to the administration. Washington knew that the nation did not have the military strength to either fight a war against Spain, which would likely end up getting into conflict with Spain's allies in Europe as well, or to crush yet another rebellion against federal authority in Kentucky. However, there was an opening for another option. The Spanish government in May had sent instructions to its diplomatic agents in Philadelphia requesting that an envoy be appointed to discuss disagreements between the two nations. The U.S. already had two commissioners, William Carmichael and William Short, in Madrid, who had been doing what they could, but their negotiations had been going nowhere. No, an envoy appointed with the mission and full authority to negotiate a treaty was needed, and Jefferson seemed like a good candidate. Not only was he known to be an experienced diplomat, but he was also held in high regard by Democratic Republicans in Kentucky. His appointment would show them that the administration was serious about looking out for the best interests of those in the West and might adver them from considering a rebellion. Though Washington had been warned by Virginia Governor Henry Lee on August 17th of rumors of disparaging remarks that Jefferson had made of Washington and his administration in terms of their being, quote, governed by British influence. 
Washington continued to look on Jefferson favorably, replying to Lee that Jefferson, quote, has heard me often, when occasions presented themselves, express very different sentiments than a predilection towards Great Britain, with an energy that could not be mistaken by anyone present. On August 28th, Randolph, at Washington's instruction, would write to Jefferson offering him the post. He even included in his letter that, quote, I could extend the expressions of the president's desire for your acceptance to a degree truly honorable to you, being sincere in him. Despite this personal appeal, Jefferson would decline the appointment, not only stating that he was at present, quote, in bed under a paroxysm of the rheumatism, which has now kept me for 10 days in constant torment and presents no hope of abatement, but also asserted that, quote, no circumstances, my dear sir, will evermore tempt me to engage in anything public. I thought myself perfectly fixed in this determination when I left Philadelphia, but every day and hour since has added to its inflexibility. Patrick Henry would also be approached about serving as the envoy to Spain, but like Jefferson, would also refuse. Thus, in November, Washington would settle on the current U.S. minister to Britain, Thomas Pinckney, as his choice to travel to Madrid to negotiate with the Spanish government. As Pinckney would not learn of the appointment until February 1795, we'll return to check in on him in a future episode, and instead turn back to Philadelphia to the run-up towards the new Senate considering the Jay Treaty in June of that year. While waiting for the special session, Secretary of State Randolph had sought any information he could from Jay about the negotiations and play down any possible concerns others may have in the meantime. He wrote to Monroe on March 8th that after his, quote, cursory perusal of the treaty with Britain, he did not see, quote, any reasonable ground for dissatisfaction in the French Republic, though he also said that he couldn't say for certain whether the treaty would be ratified or not. More time would pass, and still no word from Jay. Washington, tired of waiting and anxious to be home, left Philadelphia from Mount Vernon on April 14th, and assigned Randolph the task of waiting for the mail and reporting back any news that might come in while he was away. One can hope that the Secretary of State wasn't put in charge of feeding Washington's pets as well while serving as a glorified house sitter. It looked like there might finally be a break in the silence on April 25th when five dispatches from Jay arrived in Philadelphia. But all that Jay said was that he had received some dispatches from Randolph and that he would reply soon. He didn't even say when he planned to return. For all Randolph knew, he could arrive that day, a month from now, or Jay could have said forget it all and ran off to Paris to get into the fun of the revolution. Randolph had had enough of this. On April 26th, he wrote a letter to Jay, which he sent to Jay's wife, asking her to give it to him upon his arrival. In this letter, he told Jay that, quote, For the discussion of the treaty, we ought to be provided with a demonstration of our conduct towards France and an answer to the questions arising from the treaty itself. I'm engaged in both points, and upon the latter in particular, I'm anxious to confer with you. Randolph offered to come up to New York to meet with him, anything he could do to finally get some information on the treaty as time was ticking away. And if June arrived and they had nothing, Washington couldn't submit any recommendations for the treaty as he would risk looking like a fool if he said something that was then contradicted by his envoy's report. The reply from Mrs. J. and May provided little comfort as she informed Randolph that she had no clue when her husband was coming home either. The time was a ticking away. Randolph could not have known it at the time, but he was not alone in being anxious for news. 
John Jay was watching the post for some word on the reaction to the treaty. And finally, with no word yet, decided in late March that he would go and see about matters firsthand. He bid farewell to British King George III and Queen Charlotte on April 10th, then departed from his hotel bound for Bristol to take the ship Severn back to the United States. He arrived in New York on May 28th and sent Randolph a short note telling him of his arrival and that he was, quote, at present too feeble to undertake a journey to Philadelphia. Perhaps I may, in a week or ten days, be so far recruited as to be able to perform it. You can almost hear Randolph gritting his teeth and cursing under his breath upon the receipt of this letter. The Senate would be back in session on June 8th. They had waited this long and patience was long since exhausted. Randolph wrote Jay on May 30th and assured him that though, quote, my own private judgment is, I confess, made up as to the propriety of ratifying the treaty, there were still questions to be asked. Since he couldn't make it in person, Randolph sent Jay a list of seven questions that would help the administration in drafting a defense. Sounds reasonable, right? Jay's reply on June 1st, received by Randolph two days later, contained only, quote, brief answers. Matter of fact, almost curt in tone. There was virtually nothing in Jay's reply that Randolph could use to construct a convincing defense of his conduct. What the heck, dude? That repeating thud you hear is of Edmund Randolph hitting his head against the wall. To be fair, Jay had been out of the country and not privy to the rising discontent about the treaty that he had negotiated, and that at this point, still no one except for Washington and Randolph knew the details contained therein. In March, a series of essays by an author using the pseudonym Franklin had been published attacking just the thought of forming any treaty, no matter how favorable or not, with Britain. Quote, there is not a nation upon earth so truly and justly abhorred by the people of the United States as Great Britain. And if their temper and sensibility were consulted, no treaty whatever would have been formed, especially at the expense of the French Republic. Randolph was under no such misconception about how difficult even the best of treaties might be to get through the Senate, and this one was not that. Without more information, Washington was forced to transmit the treaty to the Senate without comment on June 8th and see how the chips fell. As Randolph biographer John J. Reardon wrote, quote, Washington and Randolph watched and listened, but said or wrote not a word about the treaty. Their silence was self-imposed, for neither man was prepared to have the treaty stand or fall on his word. It required little political experience to see that the forces on each side were delicately balanced and that a word from either man would probably determine the fate of the treaty. As Washington and his Secretary of State had done, once the Senate received the treaty, they imposed confidentiality on their proceedings despite the protestations of the Democratic Republicans who were itching to publicly attack the treaty. Thus, the Senate now became the target of the opposition press. Quote, how does the secrecy of the Senate in relation to the treaty comport with the sovereignty of the people? Was the main question being asked. Within the Senate chamber, the 20 Federalists and 10 Democratic Republicans, at least as best they can be defined along party lines at a time when party labels were not all that well defined, sat and debated the provisions of the treaty. 
as the Senate's executive journal recording the proceedings of this time did not actually make note of the debate, but rather stuck only to the formal actions taken. We have no way of knowing what arguments were made either for or against the treaty. We do know that on Saturday, June 13th, a motion was made to lift the confidentiality order, but only nine senators voted in favor of the motion, so the veil of secrecy continued. By Wednesday the 17th, a Federalist motion was made to ratify the treaty, quote, on condition that it shall be agreed to suspend the operation of the 12th article of the treaty and, quote, to proceed without delay to further friendly negotiations with His Majesty on the terms and conditions in question. So what was in Article 12 that even the Federalists couldn't get behind? It should come as little surprise that it had to do with trade in the West Indies. Though opening the trade up to American vessels, the British had put in a number of conditions as to what goods could or couldn't be carried by U.S. shipping, with lucrative goods such as, quote, molasses, sugar, coffee, cocoa, and cotton being on the prohibited list. This motion did not go far enough in correcting the problems of the treaty for the Democratic Republicans, so Senator Aaron Burr put forward a resolution on Saturday, June 20th, calling for removing Articles 9, 10, 24, and part of the 25th, and making alterations to the 2nd, 3rd, 6th, 12th, 15th, and 21st Articles as conditions for ratification. As you can imagine, renegotiating so much of the treaty as opposed to one article out of 28 would likely have meant no treaty. This motion was defeated the next day on a party-line vote. 10 for Burr's motion, 20 against. The day after, the 24th, another motion was put forward, this time to reject the treaty. This one was again rejected on a party-line vote, with the same 10 voting for and everyone else except Senator John Henry of Maryland voting against. Then, before another alternate could be put forward, a vote was called for the original motion to ratify the treaty except for Article 12. Henry rejoined the vote and was one of the 20 who voted for ratification, while the same 10 who had voted for the other two motions voted against this one. 20 was enough, though, as it was two-thirds of the Senate. The treaty was thus ratified. That wasn't the end of it, though. In fact, in many ways, this was just the beginning. First, we need to go back and look at that motion on the 17th. The Senate Executive Journal doesn't record who offered up the motion. But on June 11th, the former Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, had written from New York to Senator Rufus King about the treaty, asserting that, quote, It will be to be lamented if no mode can be devised to save the main object and close the irritable questions which are provided for. Everything besides an absolute and simple ratification will put something in jeopardy. What did he propose then? Why? A conditional ratification, quote, with the condition annexed to it, till an explanation in order to a new modification of the treaty shall place it on a more acceptable footing, or till an article to be sent to our minister containing that modification shall be agreed upon between him and the British court as a part of the treaty. In other words exactly what happened. Now, this letter is interesting because Hamilton references, quote, the article in question and that, quote, reflection has not mitigated the exceptionable point, suggesting that he knew what was in the treaty. But as we just said, there was supposedly an order in place for senators to not reveal the details of the treaty to anyone. Hamilton also mentions a letter from King dated the day prior, a letter which is now missing 
and presumed lost to history. Did King reveal the details of the treaty to Hamilton? There's no way to know for certain, but it seems to have been taken for granted by Hamilton biographer Ron Chernow, while King biographer Robert Ernst says that it was likely that it was King who offered up the motion on the 17th. This will not be the last time that the now out-of-power Hamilton will have an influence on government policy. In fact, just go ahead and get ready for a great deal more of this. Also, King wasn't the only one who leaked the details of the treaty, but we'll get to that in a minute. Ratification wasn't the end of it for the administration, as they now had to figure out what to do about the Article 12 condition. As Randolph wrote to the president the next day, the questions remaining were, quote, one, is not the resolution of the Senate respecting the treaty between the U.S. and Great Britain intended to be their final act? Or do they expect that the new article shall be submitted to them before the treaty takes effect? Two, does the Constitution permit the president to ratify the treaty without submitting the new article after it shall be agreed to by the British king to the advice and consent of the Senate? Randolph proposed putting the question to the cabinet for consultation, but it seems that the Senate wasn't willing to be patient for that, as Randolph soon got word that the Senate, quote, expected the president to send them a draft article to replace Article 12, to which they might give their assent. Randolph warned against Washington actually abiding by this request from the Senate, as it would not only suggest an eagerness on Washington's part for ratification, thus negating his, to this point, hands-off approach to the matter, but it would also invite in Senate influence on the ins and outs of negotiation, which was a prerogative of the executive branch, and would also allow for the possibility of a future Senate rejecting the treaty if negotiations over Article 12 took longer than expected and had to be resubmitted to the Senate for approval. The Senate adjourned on June 26 with no response from the administration. Washington would consult with his cabinet on how to proceed, but the Senate would play no part in those discussions. Thus, a line was defined between the authority of the executive and the legislative branches of government that would continue on to the present day, 2018, as of this recording. Before we part ways, there is one more development that I'd like to share with you. As I said, Rufus King was not the only one leaking information out about the treaty. On June 29th, Benjamin Franklin Bosch published an abstract of the treaty in the Aurora, then, two days later, published a pamphlet with the language of the full treaty. The administration had been making plans to publish the treaty in the Philadelphia Gazette, but Bosch beat them to the punch. As such, he was able to control the message, as we'll see next time in an episode I'd like to call The Light of Burning Effigies. Special thanks again to Sean Munger of the Second Decade Podcast. I'll have a link to the Second Decade website in the show notes page, but it is pretty simple. Second Decade, all one word, two Ds in the middle, dot net. Should you have any questions, comments, or Randolph is my homeboy memes, send them on to Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be reached on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. If you've missed an episode or two, head over to presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. You'll also find sources used for this episode, as well as information about all the various ways you can subscribe to this podcast to ensure that you don't miss a single episode moving forward. You can also search for the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or TuneIn. 
As always, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your day to listen. Until next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.